The following content may contain strong language. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Theatre Delicatessen podcast. I'm Roland Smith, co-artistic director of Theatre Deli. With me almost crashing the introduction with her giggles is Lydia Thompson, producer and curator. And today we're talking to theatre maker and director Nadia Litty. So just before I was about to record this, Lydia looked at me and we were mulling over what I was going to say and she said, this is a big one, isn't it? And in many ways it kind of is. Nadia was the director on a project for the National Youth Theatre called Homegrown and didn't finally make it to the stage. Consciously, I didn't give too many details because Nadia has told that story as has Omar the writer on the project many many times in many different forms and I think both of them to a certain degree want to now leave it behind but it's really important that that story is told from every angle. I'm not going to go into it in full detail here either. Suffice to say that Nadia and Omar were creating a piece of work about British Asians that looked at radicalisation that was devised with the National Youth Theatre Company. And for whatever reason, and you'll hear Nadia talk about this, and many other people have different views on this, the project was pulled at the 11th hour, and Nadia and Omar were not involved in that decision-making process. We have to give full disclosure as Theatre Delhi. Um, we had worked with Omar at a previous Theatre Soup Festival, Bush Bazaar, and have been in contact with him for one reason or another over the last few years, although we've never actually collaborated. So when I heard this had happened, I gave them a call and said, shall we have a coffee and see if there's anything else we can do? Um, We provided the space so that Nadia and Omar could finish the project. So that's the background. It's both as interesting and as non-interesting as any listener would want to make it, but it's worth saying. It's kind of unfortunate because both of them are amazing artists in their own right, and not only does this story sort of stick with them, as it does in this introduction, but actually it was quite bruising and quite hurtful for both. So here's the story. Here's Nadia talking about her place in the theatre industry and again how she sees us as a collective endeavour moving forward. Uh, So that's cool and I thought it would be interesting to hear you bitch about Privileged white men in theatre, because, you know, that's a thing. I mean, it's just a sliding scale, isn't it? But the most bizarre thing, (laughs) that reading through all your stuff online, is you work with Mike Bradwell. I did. That was my first job ever. That was my first job ever. (laughs) I was still at drama school. Oh, really? Yeah, I was at, uh, so I went to RADA. I was the first black directing student ever at RADA. I think I'm still the only one, in fact. (laughs) You always think that, like, when you're the first, that you're like, and then a cavalcade of change happened. No fucking change happened. Uh, But yeah, and I went in, I was actually looking, I went to meet Abigail Gonda, who I love, uh, and I was looking for a play to do for my coming out show, because you could do a full production, right? Uh, and she had, you know, the time when f- scripts were actual physical things rather than things you could email. And I went over to just like, and there was this like fat bearded cunt basically <laughs> sat in the corner. 
And he was really mean to me. And he was like, don't read that. Like, that's rubbish. You want to read the, you know, the K Ads head or the Naomi Wallace or whatever. And I was like, wait a minute. I was only like 21 as well. And I was like, what? And then I got like, you know, an email two days later saying, I'm doing my last show. Do you want to come do it with me? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Who are you? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I hadn't twigged that it was, was his, his gaff. Was this um, when it used to be, you had the Bush Theatre above the O'Neill's. Mm. Uh, this is back. And then the offices around the corner. Yeah, down the yeah. road, around the corner. And yeah. you went down and it was into one the room. I yeah. think it was in one room. And it was the basement, and Mike would sit there against his desk. And he'd just... sit like this, and his shirt would ride up. Yeah. And it was glorious. It was like the most glorious sort of jab of the hut moment. Do you know what I mean? And he'd, because he was at one end and everything. And actually, what was really amazing about working, and I've worked at the Bush in its current incarnation as well, is that generally that whole theatre was run by like four people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And they would just bring in, you know, so like the stage management would change every... And there, there was something kind of amazing about that because it meant they sort of lived or died by whatever decision that they'd made. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you know, we programmed this crappy play and they're like, well, we'll hold our hands up. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just about us. And he didn't need a lot of opinions. His opinion was the only one that mattered. Oh, yeah, because I, I met him through the National Student Drama Festival and did uh, a play with that was written by Helen Blakeman. Mm. who now writes, um, well, I still kind of in touch with her, but she writes for telly quite a lot now. And he was passionate about this play. Uh, and I was still, same as you, I was still at university. I was, I was writing my dissertation for my finals on the Easter holidays where I was assisting Mike at the bush. And it was like that. And this was back in the day when it, the show was going really well, really well. And they were kind of talks, oh, maybe we can transfer this. Maybe mm. it be. And Nick De Jong came in and gave it a slating review, and that was it. Review in the standard. Oh, Killed back the show. When Nick De Jong was relevant. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, I <laughs> back when all this was Greenfield, it was like yeah. amazing. I mean, I thought I thought it was really strange when, you know, because obviously it went, I worked on his last show ever, and then it was Josie. Uh, and I remember because then there was a point where they lost their funding. And I thought it so didn't ring true to me. Because her whole angle, if I remember it correctly, was about, look how broad our reach is. You know, look how many transfers we've had. And for me, that so didn't feel like the point of the push. And I think people called her up on it quite quickly and they kind of changed tack because it was always about these are the writers that we gave space to. That is that is our place in the ecology and nobody else does that. Um, You know, and they had they'd had amazing writers go through the push. And so it felt really weird for me to suddenly be about. But look, we got like three shows in the West End or whatever and, you know, and not even particularly exciting ones. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just say that's so not what that building is it's a, it's for. A, it's a bit like the BBC, the old debate about funding the BBC, when you say, well, it's kind of like self-defeating. If you have popular shows on the BBC, well, then we don't need to fund it because they're popular. Yeah. yeah, the BBC should be... But that was the Bush thing. I mean, was it, like, was, it was weird for me as well because I went from working at the Bush and then I just didn't at the Royal Court. Um, I was in the international department of the Royal Court and... Then I ended up really quickly after graduating, uh, ended up going and being the associate director of 503. And so I'd seen sort of the top three, in a way, for a writer, those are the three theatres you wanted to get your script into, right? I was also at 503 and we just produced The Mountaintop. So I were riding this wave of like, ha we've done it. (laughs) Uh, And it was very odd to me because I felt like in all of those, they felt slightly homogenous, to be honest, to a woman of colour, like coming out of the game, like it was a good homogenage. I was like, this is awesome. It's awesome to work in new writing. It's all I want to do. Um, but I still felt like, I don't know, like I, there was a real sort of, 
lack of identity difference for me, uh, even at that point where I was just like, I think you're all kind of it's the same monster with different heads and that can be an awesome thing, like cool, but I sort of didn't understand why they didn't have clear identities. I must say that I do think they now have clearer identities. Like I think, although I wasn't convinced by Vicky Featherstone at the beginning of her time at the court, I actually think she's playing a really strong hand, which mm. is I'm not interested in well-made plays. You know, it will be flawed, but I'll put it out there because I am the royal court. Yeah. I remember once being on a panel with uh, Chris Campbell and it was really offensively called something like The Gatekeepers. I was like, do one. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like me, Chris Campbell... Karis Halswell at the time was working at the Bush, uh, Will from the Hampstead. And I was like, well, if I just brought along as a director? And uh, fine. And um, Chris Campbell, you know, some, and it was all writers in the audience. And I was like, they're going to start throwing fruit. And uh, and somebody said to me, you know, like, oh, why doesn't the Royal Court have an open, you know, script policy where anyone can send their play in, you know? Yeah. And he just turned to them and went, because I'm the Royal Court. And I was like, fair. <laughs> Do you know what wow, I mean? Because yeah, yeah, like, yeah. everyone has their place in the ecology. And if we spend all of our time doing that and all of our money doing that, then we don't have the time. And I was like, I think that's totally valid. I think that's a totally valid thing. Like, not every theatre should be everything. And like, that's what the Bush can do. That's what the, you know, 503 can do. That's what the Fimbra can do. That's what they exist to do. Yeah. Like, I, when, when, when Madani changed the policy on new writing... And he kind of opened the window as opposed to every script. I remember lots of people being up in arms about it. It's like, well, then what the fuck's the bush for? Yeah, word. And one reviewer kind of saying, oh, well, I guess then what you're saying is I don't, it's not important for me to come and see every show that you produce and review it. Uh, which I was completely caught through the middle, you know, mm. down the middle of, because I'm not sure... How many scripts have ever been produced that came through open Yeah, submissions? yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is, it's a total fallacy. Yeah, it? exactly. We'll read all your scripts, but we won't put them on. And it's kind of like, and then I think there is a, as you say, because everyone, you know, back in the day when all this was Greenfields and you would get your script and you print it off five times and one envelope would go this way, that way, that way. And it's like, it's a small pool of writers creating work. And actually what you need I would argue it is a curator, mm. curator, artistic director going, I think you're an interesting artist. Where's your next script? Which is really interesting. Something that Tom Morris said when I sat down and chatted to him about was the way that he'd always approached discovering new artists was you see a show, you don't ask whether it's good or not. You don't ask whether it's successful or not. You simply ask, is there anyone involved in this production that I am excited about what they're going to do next? Word. I think also like, so I've recently moved into working in film as well. And I don't know why I'm able to do this with film more. Uh, I think it's because I resent the experience of watching a bad film slightly less than the experience of watching a bad play. But I will often say like, clearly everyone in this film should make another film. That yeah. does not feel, I mean, this film is great, but I'm like, you're clearly all really, really skilled. It just hasn't kind of come together in the most brilliant way, but you should all totally make more movies. What are you doing? Do you know what I mean? Uh, but I think in theatre that's harder to determine. I think particularly if you're a writer. Haven't we all seen that play that's just had like a really bad production? And you're like, it's so hard. And particularly when you get like, you know, that type of god-awful uh, young director who's like maybe seen a couple of shows in Berlin and therefore wants to do things in the European style. Uh, and so you're like, the bells and whistles the director? Is it the right? You know, because you don't know. It's the first time you're seeing a play. And I think I always feel for 
particularly first time writers who get a production yeah. of that. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, I, I get it. And I've partly been guilty of it myself. I did a show at the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, last year, which was the second play by a writer called Somalia Seaton. And, um, and I said, and it was quite a conventional play in, in so much as it was set in kind of classrooms and living rooms and street corners and things like that. But she'd also written a chorus and I was like, eh. and, um, and I said, to her, I said, tomorrow I'm going to do a bit of a production on this, but I promise you it's all, it's going to be about lifting the text out, not trying to bury it. And she went, yeah, cool groovy and it wasn't like massive things it basically had like a big installation set which was like a tower of a four meter bloody high uh <laughs> tower of kind of perspex and uh metal and concrete boxes which were all filled with water so and nobody wore shoes and there were no props at all so there was lots of like oh can you get me a glass of water and just nothing ever appears uh and then the uh, chorus all went giant boxes on their heads as well, which gave me so much pleasure. Um, But all of it was about elevating the text. And I think that bad directors just trample all over a text and they're just like, I've had an idea because I saw this Ostermeyer, uh, whatever it is. And you're like, yeah, but it's not coming out of something the text is telling you. And so I think actually it's really tough for a writer in that respect. I'll survive. I'll probably go on. Do you know what I mean? Like as a director, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah, you, can, you can kind of hide behind the play as well yeah. and be like, oh, it's the play's fault. It wasn't me. Um, and I think that, I also think that it's really, I don't, have I ever done a play? I think most of the plays I've done, I've had quite a long relationship with the writer before we ever made it to rehearsals. Yeah. So like me and Brad Birch did our first play together in 2013 but we've been working together since 2011, just on kind of like improving our minds. Do you know what I mean? So actually by the time we got to actually being in a rehearsal room and going, we're going to do this show, we did it at the Soho, um, we understood each other implicitly. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah, neither of us were going to lead the that's, other one. That's the one thing I remember when I used to be producing much more work than I am now, uh, and when it was, you know, and it was terrible and it was great and it was energising, was that you would just collect people around you. Mm. And then you would kind of just, you'd just talk. And that 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 was why I think what Delhi aspires to do, and I don't think we've ever cracked it, about creating a community is you are just around people. And those ideas just ferment and they sit on the shelf. And then suddenly you go, oh, we should do that thing that we talked about three years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've always been uh, very much a fan of sharing workspace with writers on a really regular basis. So... Uh, me and Omar Okeri, uh, up until very recently, shared an office space with right. like eight other people. But and just because, and me and Brad, I think at various points would like get a space and like hang out in it for a month. Um, and there are still ideas that come. You know, we're like, hey, remember that thing we wanted to do a play on the moon? Gosh, <laughs> uh, etc. And um, but actually, because I think the thing about going into work every day with each other and also particularly dealing with uh, sometimes stuff in the news, although not particularly, uh, but also like creative things. Like I, before I agree to work with somebody, like I like to experience art with them. So mm. I'll like go to a gallery or go see a film or whatever it is, because I'm like that shorthand that we're going to create is going to get us so much further. I've only ever worked with one designer as well, actually. I've worked with one designer really? on over 20 shows. Um, 
yeah, I think we didn't do, I did one in America without her. Mm. Uh, and I did one in Stratford without her because she was having a baby. Jeremy, and that's it. I've worked with her on everything else. Uh, and maybe like my sound and light designers are slightly more like shifting, although generally they're the same. Um, but yeah, I sort of think that that shorthand is, and developing together actually. Um, so like, you know, I want to do this workshop on Heart of Darkness and like my designer will be there just because, and not because she's particularly doing design for it at this moment, but just because it's like, hey, you know me better than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to tell me when I'm having a really bad idea, yeah. which is often. Um, you t- yeah, directors shouldn't have ideas. That's what a director once said to me. She's just stop, ha- get, stop having ideas. I get really anxious when you see people who are writing and directing I'm just, like the same show, and I'm just like, but who tells you you're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm really reliant on a writer being like, that is not my intention. And the audience. Like, oh, no. The audience immediately yeah, afterwards yeah, from experience. I know. They come up I and just, they just look at you sort of wide-eyed. You know, I'm a black person. I'm afraid of lynching, so I don't need that <laughs> extra anxiety, frankly. Um, but no, I think also, you know, like me and Omar, it's really funny because in a way, me, mine and Omar's relationship has become like, one of the most pivotal in my creative life, although that's probably not what we intended. Mm. Uh, but actually the, the thing that people didn't know is that he and I were working on something else. Like we'd met a year before. I think he'd actually cussed a show that I was working on on Twitter. And, uh, but I agreed with him. I was like, he's right. <laughs> and then I was like, let's have a coffee. And that became, let's go. I think we went to see, we went to see the wild duck at the Barbican together, I think. And, um, and then I'd had this idea, so we'd seen The Wild Duck, and I was like, hmm, Ibsen. And uh, Ibsen's great, hey. And uh, I was like, I'd like to do Ibsen. And I kind of read some Ibsen and was a bit like, I don't really want to do Ibsen. I want to do a new version of Ibsen. And I called up home and I said, do you fancy doing a new version of Ibsen together? And we were sitting in a, we'd got an office at the Jailwood Space, who'd given us an office for two weeks for free. And um, we were sitting in, and he was like, I've just had this email about doing this show about Islamic radicalism. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, um, yeah, and now we've gone back. We've gone back to our Ibsen. Oh, really? We're make, uh, yeah, we're making short films, and it's fucking great. Do you know what I mean? Awesome. <laughs> because we... you know, you're just like, oh yeah, we had this like pool of stuff that we wanted to do once upon a time. You know, and like literally everything we're doing was on a piece of wall somewhere yeah. at some stage, and you're like, those didn't go away. It just you're like, oh, now's the time. Now we're ready to do that shit. Great. Before we jump and ride the elephant around the room about <laughs> homecoming. Uh, I am really honestly curious about how you ended up, how can I put this, with theatre being your artistic voice. Fair. Because just even looking at website, there's a great dyna- dynamic. There's the Romain Roland quote about um, that theatre should be open to the masses, should be able to contain people and the actions of people, which we all aspire to until we get busy and then we just try and survive ourselves. Uh, And then the second one is, if your aim is to change the world, journalism is a much more immediate short-term weapon. By Tom Stoppard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your enemies close, right? Yeah, right. Um, Um, I love white people. Some of my best people are white people. It's cool. (laughs) But also the way you talk about your, your career trajectory, that, you know, the... And even the reaction to it, those places that you started were the places I started. As um, Nigel from Shunt will say, you know, got in touch with the weirdies and that was my career finished. Um, I thought that was going to be my career, whilst Bush, 503, Royal Court, 
regional venue. Mm-hmm. Done. Um, but I came from the point of view of directing David Hare's State of the Nation plays at the National Student Drama Festival. How, what was your route into it? How did it, why was theatre the thing that you kind of... Um, do you know what? I I used to think that this was like a given. And now the more I think about it now, mainly because I've diversified what I do, almost to the point where I don't call myself a theatre director anymore because I spend too long there for having to justify all the other things I do. And so I'm just like, I'm an artist, which makes you sound like an asshole. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like if you yeah. have to try and describe like, but I also do this and also do this, people just... kind of don't trust you in a weird way. They're like, but how do you do them all? I'm like, I do this. I've got the same number of hours in the day as Beyonce. Like it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's an English thing. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, it's yeah, a very English thing actually. In America, they genuinely never ask you to explain yeah. it. They're just like, yeah, cool. You know, like whatever, like everybody grinds. Um, but I, I'm not, despite the dulcet tones, uh, I'm not from England. I'm from Sudan. And uh, I grew up, spending my summers here because my mum's half English and um and my mum I'm the eldest of six uh had we've got really long summer holidays in Sudan they're from like April to August because it's too hot besides anything else and that's a lot of time to fill when you have that many children <laughs> and uh, so she quite rightly would just pack me off to the theatre and you know she'd go in and she'd say what time does it you know come down you know, I'll be here to pick you up. Here's a quid for your program, a quid for your ice cream, When back when things cost that much. And uh, and she would leave me. And sometimes I see two shows a day um, just because that, she was like, it's a really valid way. I mean, I was also like, you know, doing normal things like going to the park and like the National History <laughs> Museum. But, uh, but I was quite keen. In the same way that I've been massively keen on film. Do you know what I mean, it's just like, you know, and I was a massive reader. Unsurprisingly, I had few friends. Uh, no. Um, and so I think... There was something about theatre, and you know, keep in mind, I grew up in a country that had no theatre, had no cinemas, had no concept of these things, you know, because of the joys of living in an Islamic dictatorship, um, and so it just felt like such a relief and release, um, and so it weirdly, weirdly, was always what I was going to do. Like I was like that really calm kid at school, and you know, I was like. What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a theatre director. Wow. That's that's what I'm going to do. And it, and it felt, I think I'd seen a couple of shows that, and like not, this isn't some like politically righteous moment where, you know, I remember seeing things like uh, the Three Musketeers at the Young Vic and there was a 12-man sword fight where they also cooked an omelette on stage. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, this is the best thing ever. I want to do this. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't, amazingly, I did not... Um, do a drama degree I did an English degree uh because in my head I was like I'm gonna be a theatre director so I might as well like read a bunch of books and learn some things about like life also I think I just kind of wanted to go to university and be like, I want to go like, kiss boys and take drugs and talk about books and be an asshole do you know what I mean and I thought theatre uh, theatre at university was shit do you know where, what I mean where like, were you I was at UCL okay. um and uh, no, not to disparage people who, you know, were part of the theatre scene at UCL, but uh, I just was like, this is the most uh, inbredly cliquey thing I've ever seen. And I'm, and I'm just not interested, actually. Uh, and so I busied myself just going to the theatre. So what, what was the stuff that you were seeing? What was inspiring you? Or angering you? Or both? <laughs> both. It's always a heady mix of both. I was kind of watching anything and everything, actually. I was really maxing out the fact you get really cheap tickets to see things as well. But the Royal Court was always my spiritual home, mainly because when I'd spent my summers here, my parents live around the corner from it. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, I'd seen the most inappropriate plays really young. Like I'd seen all of Sarah Kane when I was far too young to be watching Sarah Kane <laughs> show. And so like, I felt like it was spiritually always where I went back to. Um, mainly because I knew I wanted to work in new writing. Classics had no appeal to me whatsoever, which is what an English degree will do to you, where you're like, I only want to read the new bits and I don't want to read the old bits. Um, and so I sort of had this idea in my head that I was going to be a Royal Court director, not particularly because I thought the plays were the only good plays out there, but just because it was, for me, that's where new writing happened. Do you know what I mean? I was like, it's it's the Royal Court. Um, the Bush was a, probably a theatre I came to slightly later in my life. Um, and so I applied to, so I got to my third year of university and I was like, I'm going to go to drama school because that's what you do. You go to drama school mm. and you become a director. And I applied to one drama school. I applied to RADA. That was it. <laughs> because Bill Gaskell taught at RADA and Bill Gaskell had run the Royal Court. And in my head, like you had to go straight to the, straight to the source, right? And so I did, I applied and I'm miraculous. He didn't run the course. The course was run by a woman called Sue Dunderdale. The course also no longer exists, which is an absolute travesty. And it really upsets me how few opportunities there are for directors who want to train in a, in a, in a school. I mean, also equally, you totally don't have to, but if you're like me and actually you really crave that kind of <laughs> institutional oh, yeah. shape for a while, it's a real shame, you know? And uh, anyway, yeah, so I got in because you know, I convinced them that I wasn't an idiot somehow. Uh, and I remember because uh, I did, um, I pitched them this idea that I'd had, which was to do an entire season of like, uh, as I refer to them, the lady Greek plays, all the Greek plays are about ladies, uh, but setting each one in a different Islamic state. And they were like, cool. And I was like, and even now I'm like, that idea was quite cool. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. Um, I don't want to do it now, but um and then you had to go and you had to direct something in front of them for like an hour and a half, which is torture. I mean, now when I think about it, I'm like, I would rather survive ISIS than do that again. And, you know, and it's, and it's Bill and somebody else was in the room. Uh, and I did a bit of Pinter. Why? Why would I do Pinter? What the fuck have I got to say about Pinter? It was awful. It was a bit from The Lover. That was it. Yeah, I mean, real stinking fucking idea. And I remember because at the end, Bill was like, well, you're either an idiot or a genius, and I think it's the first one. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And, um, and I got in, amazingly. And I did ask him. He and I became best, best friends right up until he died last year. Mm. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, dude, I still don't get it. And he was like, you want to know what it is? I was like, yes, here's the secret. Like, what, how the fuck? He's like, you took your shoes off. He's like, you walked in and you took your shoes off. And you, you know, you, and I just thought she's gonna be fine because she's totally comfortable in this space. And you know, and he was like, you were sort of willing to fail. Yeah, you were totally yeah, yeah, cut. Yeah, there was yeah. nothing. And I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> like that's really, that's really comforting to know in some way. Um, so yeah, so I did that. Rada was great. Um, I, I think I was because I spent so much time in London. I understood the ecology of theatre incredibly well, and so I think I was quite a practical person. And I knew what sort of the appetites that existed at that time were. And I think I also wanted to go and work places where I was like, I'm going to learn some stuff about like how all these things, because I sort of, I know that there is an argument, there's a director, you're just an artist, but I do think you've got to be 
and I say this as somebody who doesn't particularly ever want to run a building, it must be said, um, but I do think you've got to be a pragmatist. And so I always think I was quite a pragmatic person at Rada about, you know, like I'm going to start learning about casting and about, you know, and actually how I'm going to um, also not be a dick. Uh, it was a really clear sense. Of yeah, you did, you did two things that I never learned to do when I was trying to get those gigs. And I was, I think, because I, I had an interview with Sue Dunderdale uh, for, for that course. I had interviews for everything when I was like that. Like, and the two things that I could never do, never quite master in my 20s were to be absolutely confident in the room and be at home with it. And it always used to piss me off that people who I perceived as not being as good as me got gigs on the strength of interviews. I thought, well, how do, how do you get... How does being in an interview tell you anything about being a director? Oh, but also, like interviewing, um, uh, like my, most application processes, totally favour white, straight, Oxford-educated yeah. men. I mean, like, like you know, and actually, like, I've got a friend who works in. Um, she's a human rights lawyer, yeah. and she goes to law schools to work with women and people of colour to boost to help them do applications because she's like, this is stacked against you, yeah. and I, as a straight, white, very overeducated woman, I'm going to help you out because actually it is not fair. And I think everyone who'd done that course before me was quite straight and from Oxford. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. they're also like massively talented but people. It's also, it's also about talking about the confidence. And wherever you get this, because I don't think it's an old boys network. I think it's that something about that experience gives you a huge amount of confidence. And um, being able to walk in a room with confidence is kind of that and casting as the old... Um, anecdotes go that's directing but the other thing was I was I was dick and I had all these things and I walked in and that was very apparent that I was nervous not on top of my game and I was a bit of a dick and I wasn't getting at the gig and that's kind of now it's kind of reassuring to know oh, that's what it was yeah. that's interesting I mean I think they were very clever actually in my training both Sue and Bill to sort of rip me down uh, and so I came in and was like, I will only do new writing. And they were like, you will do Shakespeare and D.H. Lawrence. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, you know, then they'd be like, and you're going to do an Othello workshop with Sean Bean and Judy Dacker Woodcate. And I was like, excuse? You can't yeah. put me in a room with two actors like that? I'm 21. Yeah, what am yeah, I going to yeah, say yeah. to them? And you learn very quickly that you just have to be able just to be to cool. Just be cool, man. It's fine. And could I stop them from smoking out the window and listening to the football on breaks? I could not. No. But that was fine. Like, it was all quite jolly. Um, you know, and actually spending six months working on one scene from D.H. Lawrence and the level of precision that that scene where the collier comes home and washes himself and his wife feeds him and learning that that is the level of detail that you need to bring to new writing, that you don't get away with broad statements just yeah. because it's a brand new spanky play. Um, is the most valuable things I ever learned. But the thing I think I brought to it was just don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like we're all, and not in a sort of we're all the older I get, the less interested I am in being friends with people I work with. Like I keep my professional life and my personal life incredibly separate. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because I'm like, I'm not in it to be your mate, but I am in it to respect you and what you do and keep things positive because I think people make their and that's just good business besides anything else like people do their best work when they're like feeling positive about things uh and as working with 115 teenagers uh which I can attest to is really tough like that whole thing of maintaining people's feelings without crossing that line is a skill it's a skill set not one that I necessarily always have sometimes I do want to pump people through windows it's this is something just to go back to the the how do you 
how do you find rich people to support? And that's that's basically what it comes down to. It's something that we've talked about a lot at Delhi, something that um, supporters of theatre and makers of performance, which is kind of like a collaborative network of us and CPT and, and you know, Arcola, people, people who support emerging theatre makers, is doing interviews and doing application forms is always only going to favour certain people Mm -hmm. because there's certain people that don't speak that language. And actually that's kind of, if the idea is interesting, get them in the room for three days, give them a room and just see how they work. But that's... I just think that you've got to go off like, what's your idea? And like, the you know, so I've got a real open door policy personally when I come to working on something where I'm like, anyone can have a brilliant idea. It might be you know, the lighting guy mm. or the stage might have a brilliant, brilliant idea. And by all means, pipe up. But by all means, also shut up when I change. You know, like, <laughs> there's a balance between those two things. Um, but you never know. And I think I'm always, I have a thing, like, I always work with a different assistant for every show that I've done, which is really hard because sometimes you find an assistant that you love. Do you know I mean? You're like, no, I wait. But I have everything, but like, I just, I don't think that people should stay at that thing of being becoming professional assistants. Like, I think it's creative death, actually. Um, and I also only ever try and pick an assistant where, and I always ask them when I interview them, like, what's the three things that you really want to do? Like the three shows that you really want to mm. do. And I try and think if them working on my show is at all uh, helpful to the thing that they eventually want to achieve. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I remember I had a, a kid working on a show that I did. I say a kid. Oh, these people are older than me. Do you know what I mean? But uh, fine. Uh, and, uh, you know, they really wanted to do a show that was about female prisons. And I was doing a show that was sort of about the American army. And I was like, weirdly, these two things add up. Yeah. I think this will help you. Do you know what I mean? And so, because I think you've got to, I've never asked anyone to make me a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not that asshole as well. But I also think you've got to think, like, if they are getting something out of coming to that room every day for their own selfish needs, brilliant great because actually they're really invested in that room and pushing it as far as Mm. they can um i also really really enjoy having white straight male assistants it's my favorite and people find that really weird where they're like what don't you feel the need to open the door for i was like yeah yeah don't get me wrong i like to open a door but i was like imagine if you're a young straight white oxford educated male and your first job is working for a black woman (laughs) imagine what that's gonna do for you i mean it's not a hard and fast rule but i do get a little bit of joy out of it which which, there's there's a kevin smith film where it's like Chris Rock or someone is directing the film and he just humiliates the guy brings him his coffee because he can. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just also, I think like for me, it seems a bit crazy to have somebody, also I'm not one of those people who's like, I don't see colour. Guess what? I do see colour because I'm black. And uh, and so I think I often want somebody who doesn't share the same set of experiences as me. Now that's not, of course, just down to race, but like I think I don't want somebody who thinks too much like I do and often I want somebody who's coming from a totally different set of experiences to me so that when I go is this a bit bollocks they go yeah it's a bit kind of insular and a bit niche it's a bit too much you and I can't find a way in is helpful actually but this is interesting because you're talking about your experiences talking about the way you're producing talking about your career today and we start again and we just do the whole career and we do a straight colorblind uh colorblind is not a thing five or three uh bush Court, that was your inspiration you know so far so so had of crushy let's go with that uh but from the girl who kind of offhandly i say this provocatively 
in the summer lived in a house just around the corner from the Royal Court. I used to work in that end of town and that's a neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. That's a certain neighbourhood. I know, I'm a fully bougie bitch. So draw the line from there to homegrown. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I, you know, so I went 503, did a little stint at Headlong and then went freelance, uh, which was great. I love being, being freelance. Um I think that that there is a real. I had it actually post homegrown. I had a real um, hate piece written about me by Nick Cohen, um, who might be my least favorite person on the planet. And um, he tweeted it to me, which I felt was really passive aggressive. Actually, no, it wasn't passive aggressive. It was aggressive aggressive. And uh, and he tweeted it to me. He said to me, he's like, and now I'm finding out that you're from a very privileged background. And I was like. Man, there ain't nothing like a straight white man who will look for any mm-hmm. reason sure. to disparage and like dis, devalidate the opinions of a person of color. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I think that actually when I first started working, I thought that the only method I was going to have to survive in what is a totemically white creative space, which is theatre, was going to be assimilating. Do you know what I mean? If I could somehow disappear my blackness as much as possible, which is helped by the fact that I speak in, you know, kind of clip blast tones and uh, am posh, I'm very middle class, I'm able-bodied and I'm straight. Uh, You know, I was like, I can just kind of disappear into the background and like blend in. That's going to be how I survive, right? Were you aware of that? Were you aware of that going into Rada, that... Yeah, that, I mean, that I kind of need to. I mean, also, I think the real problem was that because of the bullshit of the way that funding is given to artists of color in this country, is that it felt to me like all of the work that's made by black artists was this really antiquated identity politics of maybe kind of like first or second generation yeah. otherness in this country. And that didn't speak to me because I was like, but that's not me. That's not my. Story also was really dominated by Caribbean and West African narratives, and I was East African, and so I was yeah. like, I genuinely, I was just like, I don't, I think this is kind of dog shit actually, and and I could already sense that there was a real lack of really proper critical thinking about work by people of color in this country because we're so obsessed with the idea of something being authentically what it is, you know, and it's all about provenance. Now, get me wrong, it is about provenance, it is about who gets to make what art, but it's also about pushing that art as far as it can go right um and i just felt like the way that a bollard barge play was being treated was not the same as other plays because everyone's been sort of terribly polite and to me actually what it really revealed having worked in those places was how everyone who worked in those buildings was white do you mm. know what I mean? so i was like you know they were white and they were straight maybe they were all straight but do you know what i mean and so i was like and so that whole thing about like oh we're not going to touch it because it's probably authentically your story or whatever it was and i was just like i think this all feels a bit like dog shit to me um, anyway, and so, yeah, I think from a very young age professionally, I probably knew that blending in was going to be an easier tactic, certainly, and that this job's really hard and I probably didn't need to, like, top load myself <laughs> with, like, stuff to worry about. And then it, I think it just ground me down, actually. Really? Yeah, massively, because if you have to go in every day and deal with, you know, we, love, we now use the word microaggression. You ever felt a microaggression? They just feel like aggression aggressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you're dealing with that on a really daily basis where, you know, people say shit to you and you're just like, keep it in, keep it in, just don't, you know. That's actually harder than just letting it out. And just being like, so, you know, that's kind of bullshit, right? Uh, and I think 
probably around 2012 or something like that. I kind of had just had enough. I just had was like, I can't keep letting posh white boys get away with saying whatever they want. And it because actually what it reminded me of was like the posh white boys I'd known at school. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, they never change. These boys called, you know, Oscar and Henry and whatever. Like they're like actually it's because nobody said anything to them then when they were children mm. and they grow up with this bullshit and they never lose it. And I can only make up now for the things I should have done when I was younger. So, so and spell this out for me because this is this is one of the most terrifying things I've had to do because I am blundering with all my preconceptions, pre privilege, the language that I use, that and I think this is true of the whole industry and is problematic of the whole industry. With all the will in the world, with all the love in the world, we're still gonna trample and make. Yeah, yeah. And was that your experience or was it targeted kind of or was it just no, this I, is an alien environment and I think you, it was a lot of people I think people don't know what to make of me generally because my identity is quite complicated do you know what I mean is that I'm part white and I'm black and I'm Muslim and Jeremy you know I and an African like that's a lot for most people to deal with so I generally as a person you know there's that old adage about uh, people of color get annoyed when people say to them you know where are you from and you say mm. London and you go where are you really from most people get annoyed with that I personally don't because I'm like I'm quite complicated, so I don't mind if you ask me where I'm from. You know, I've got a slightly peculiar accent as well. Um, I didn't necessarily feel... Also, I'm a woman, and the intersection of uh, racism and uh, misogyny, or misogynoir, as it's known, is particularly heady. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I remember on the first day I started working at uh, the Royal Court, somebody took me to one side and said, you know, nobody's ever going to take you seriously if you keep wearing short shirts and high heels. And I was like, and they, that was them trying to help me. And I was like, and it was a man. And I was like, look at the space where you can like look at this 22 year old's body and deem that like that is the reason that she is the only woman of color in this building. Do you know what I mean? I was like, because that's the connection. I was like, you have singled me out as a woman and you've also singled me out as a woman of color. Mm. And you have made me feel embarrassed about my body being in this space. like. Oh my God, the level of fuckery that, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, but at the time I was like, Ugh. and actually I then became very buttoned up, you know, I was like, oh God. And I remember it wasn't until I went to work at the Almeida, I went, I was the staff director on The Homecoming, which was amazing. And, you know, Pinter's in the room, like, it was the most ex extraordinary experience. And we had a black woman playing Ruth. Um, and I remember my camera, God bless him, uh, led over to me and he's like, you know, you can relax. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and actually, it was the first time that somebody was just like, and I don't know whether it's just if you're having Jenny Jules in that room and like actually suddenly going, there there can be two. And I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I did, I just relaxed. And that was, you know, a million years ago, 2008, I think. And, um, and it, I think, so I didn't necessarily get people saying in the same way that now I get, thanks to the joys of the internet, uh, I get so much really direct racist grief like really, really specifically unpleasant. Like a lot of die back, bitch, die, go back to your country, got a British passport, what are you gonna do about it? Ah. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, like now, thank you, internet. Um, but I think at the time, it was just, yeah, that like, just that microaggression that makes you go home and like get in the bath and then you're still in the bath three hours later. You know what I mean? Cause you're just like, I'm just, I just need to cut myself off from it for a bit. Um, but also I think there was a real thing about like what plays 
you were being offered. Uh, the, you know, I now turn down a lot more work than I do, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you know sure, I mean? sure. And, um, and at the beginning, obviously, and I never talk about career. I think it's really poisonous to conceive of I'm an artist and I have a body of work. I don't have a career. And, um, but you know, now when I think back to the plays that I was being offered at the beginning and some of them were amazing, like I was working with amazing writers, but I'm like, man, were they just waiting for a black woman to turn up so they could do a play about black men in prison? <laughs> you know what I mean? I was mm -hmm. like, actually, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Well, don't, I love probably... working on it and it was a great play, but is that okay? The, the, I mean, the honest answer is probably, yeah. Yeah. Because they shouldn't give it to me and they shouldn't give it to, you know, a lot of my contemporaries. Well, they should and we should be beyond that. But it's... Um... But also not all white men are equal. <laughs> yeah. But in so much as like... Somebody said that there was a play recently on, uh, which is about blackness and blackface and whiteface and all those things, directed by a white man. And somebody said to me, you know, do you have a problem with that? I said, no, I'm the last person who is yeah, essentialist. Yeah, yeah. I think the greatest piece of art about Muslims is Four Lions. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's made by a white man and it is extraordinary like i wish i could make something that good you know i haven't started watching the state yet which is on channel four you know peter kosmitsky's piece about isis and i'm like i really want it to be brilliant yeah. because i want to feel as a member of a perceived community wrongly or rightly uh that at least my community is worth putting the time in do you know what i mean that actually what's worse is when we get broad brushstrokes and so i don't care who's doing the painting at all as long as it's detailed as long as they put you know Four lives took four years to write, you know, like yeah. every day, all day, grinding on that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care who's doing that. You know, as long as it like deserves that much attention. Great, Kushti. Um, but I think, anyway, so kind of going back to it, I think I was, uh, I was also becoming increasingly sick of being the only person of color in the room. Um, and I think particularly because it felt like in your creative teams, like my designer, Lorna Richie, is a white Scotch woman. Um, but it just felt like, and that was great, and I love her, and I never want to work with anyone else. Uh, but you just felt like it was kind of everyone. Do you know, you're like, this is this is. Oh, so even if you're doing a kind of black play, but then everyone who's wielding the power is white. It's just like really, mm, this doesn't. And actually, so I started to work less and work on myself more, and um, and actually looking at like what were the meaningful relationships in my professional life um, and actually sort of honing in on a kind of cabal of writers and mm. being like, I want to work with you guys loads rather than, you know, taking every Tom, Dick and play that was handed to me. Um, I mean, here's the thing, right? <laughs> here's, the th here's the thing about diversity uh, is that I have now been working for exactly 10 years. It's 10 years this month, in fact. And um, what you realise if you have been on the wheel twice yeah. uh, is that every few years the industries the creative industries at large so television and film as well as theatre have a kind of collective spasm of conscience mm. do you know what I mean and they're just like and it's normally to do with a shaming with a public shaming that has happened because something is all white yeah. do you know what I mean and they go oh crap let's talk about diversity and let's you know and I've probably been part of those diversity initiatives you know I last year was invited to uh, um, joined this professional development program with the BFI, having never made a film, you know, and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And then you read the small print and you're like, oh, it's all artists of color because they are trying to compensate for the amount of funding that does or doesn't go to. And like you, as an artist of color, you can find that as difficult as being ignored because suddenly you're like, the door's open, but now it's only because you're black. 
And by black, I mean non-white. Um, and you have to kind of get over that. You have to just be like, well, I can either be part of the change and accept that it's kind of awkward and it's sort of painful and lots of angry white men are going to send you emails being like, you're not the best, you're just there because you're black, which we all got. Which is amazing, isn't it? Like We wow. all got people being a bit like, yeah, well, you know, you're not the best though, are you? And you're like, let me introduce you to the tide of history. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just show you who inherited the earth. Um, and in fact, not a majority. But, um, and, uh, you know, but I think you kind of have to get over it because you have to be like, and I want to make a film. So I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make that film because it is easier for that guy, Will, or that guy, you know, whoever. Um, but that is just sometimes just as difficult as being on the outside it's being on the inside and what it takes to be on the inside and I think somebody asked me the other day they're like what's the thing that you fear the most and I was like it's another person calling me an Uncle Tom it really, really scared I like on it because when you are one of the only people who's made it through the door and you think you've done it on your own terms and then for somebody to turn around to you and be like no no house negro that that would scare the crap out of me. It's never happened, Jeremy. Like I think that I'm, I think I'm good. Uh, but yeah, I think that, and we've all seen that guy. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to be the person who gave up my principles just to get a job, ever. No, um, it's, I mean it's. Yeah, I, I would I would understand that completely. But I just uh, I feel, I just I just kind of I mean this is so so facile to say, but it's just when I first met you, which was through Omar, and it was off the back of Homegrown. And I was reaching out because I I was curious to know what had happened. But we'd worked with Omar on Bush Bazaar and I, I kind of fully respected him and re- respected. such fear. I think he instills quite a lot of fear in people. But, but you, know? you both did. You both did because you were both. I mean, talk about the confidence that Oxbridge gives you. I just remember um, the three of us sat on the steps of a Farringdon building having a fag before we, we sat and had a proper meeting. And it was just like, I am out of my depth here because this, clearly the stakes, and I don't think it was just that show. I think it's what you've chosen to do, what he's chosen to do, what the other artists of colour or artists of non-heterosexuality that, that have crossed our path. It becomes really fucking important in a way that it isn't to a lot of the rest of us. Not that, you know, me it's life and death what well, you know the stories we tell how we tell them and the audiences we reach with it but it seems so important that it was actually quite humbling and I don't really understand why that just doesn't happen more when you open up the room or you read the work that's sent to you even if it's you know the English is bad and the spelling's awful it's you know I see I see this the same with Steph Driscoll with stuff that she's doing with Nabokov it's like this fucking matters and actually the stakes are so much higher for you and that should be humbling mm. to the rest of us in the industry because those stories are important I also I mean I think I always say like slightly facetiously like I always do my uh, it, whichever job I'm doing like it's my last yeah um but guess what that's also a real possibility do you know what I mean I was like you know because also you have to talk about appetite and i don't know where appetite comes from i don't know whether appetite is actually governed by audiences or where the food you know the kind of creative food we give them like creates whatever but i'm like if you're an artist of color in this country traditionally the work that you're invited to make is work where you critique your own perceived community right yeah so if you are a black artist uh maybe you'll get to write plays about knife crime on the estate or fgm 
Uh, you know, if you're an Asian artist, maybe you get to write about honor killings or forced marriage. That's the work that we are invited to make. You can have great success making that kind of work. Uh, you know, I, there was that whole thing about Adil Akhtar was the first, become the first Asian man or the second Asian man to ever win a BAFTA, you know. But I'm like, and the last guy was on Puri for East is East. That was it. And I'm like, yeah, but those two men are still, play- that's the same part. They're playing abusive Pakistani husbands because we actually have not moved the appetite for the kind of work that people of color are allowed to make in this country forward at all. Do you know what I mean? Like that to me is depressing, not like a huge thing of success. Um, and so I think that there are an increasing number of, although it's not the majority, uh, of artists of color who are just going, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing the work that is governed by predominantly white appetites. I'm making work for my own community and not in that kind of gross way where it's like, let's all sit and celebrate like how awesome it is to be black. You can totally be critical of your own community, but it's being critical on your own mm. terms and not having to explain yourself. Like I, you know, I write uh, journalism on the side to make some money and uh, and it's it's the difference for me between when you write like an article about film for the guardian and you have to explain like what is you know the third wave cinema or whatever and then if you write it for a film magazine you don't because you know that you have the right audience and it's basically that difference where you go i don't need to explain this and guess what if you need it explain look at the fuck up yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't understand. Just click on the hyperlink. Seriously, when I simply. go when I go and watch like you know a history, you know one of Shakespeare's histories, I have no fucking idea who's who. Do you know what I mean? All of my historical education is like eighteen ninety onwards. Do you know what I mean they're going ah oh, you know this king or that king, and I'm like I'm gonna have to go and read a book, and that's cool, and I really enjoy learning about other people's history because that's not my history that I see on stage. Do you know what I mean? And there's a whole like interesting conversation about like the universal and the particular in that, um, but I don't resent that i don't resent having to learn about somebody else do you know what i mean and it just feels like that does not go two ways do you know what i mean you know if you're a person of color you got to spoon feed every fucking thing to a white audience and i'm like or read a book or yeah. like you know what? open your eyes just fucking open your eyes <laughs> to the fact that we do not live in a white majority fucking planet <laughs> do you yeah. know what i mean well, i always think this with shakespeare and the simplest way i can put it is um if i go and see a band live usually the week before I listen to all their albums so I get my head around it yeah, so I, I can really like, enjoy it. Good, so I know all the songs now. Yeah, bye. I know all the words <laughs> and it's fine, I can sing along. It's like, well, we do get to Shakespeare Blind. Read re- read the show, read, yeah. read it, because it's going to, anyway. But I think, I mean, that's why Shakespeare never really, appeared. I mean, I'd quite like to do Julius Caesar, but you know why I wanted Julius Caesar? Because I grew up in a dictatorship. Do you know what I mean? And therefore I'm like, Julius mm. Caesar speaks really specifically to me. Um, I'm not going to do that terrible version where they like dress him up as Gaddafi or whatever. Like I'm not that fucking gauche, but um, <laughs> someone somewhere has done that version. Definitely. But, uh, but you know what I mean? I think this idea that there can never be a kind of universal writer is just a bit bollocks as well. Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, I'm cool. Doesn't really, not to say that like Wallace Sienka appeals to me more. Right? I think, do you know I mean, I think that whole idea of canon and what is canon is, it's all a bit grim but anyway. So let's, because some people, if there's any listening, may not know the full story on Homegrown. And we're not, the opportunity's there, but there's no need to rehash it because, and there's plenty of stuff online Just about it. buy the book and read yeah, it. Yeah, buy the book and read <laughs> it. And I, and I did. Very uh, long. Yeah, because it's, because it's three routes through five. an immersive, three. sorry, five, How sorry, five. You. Five. Five routes through an immersive experience. And I, I felt rightly beaten up and kind of I, I was left spinning by it um and to be landed I, I had two responses to it 
and I went back to it. I've been reading it on train again when in preparation for this. On one hand, being absolutely spinning by the fact that I think you say in the director's note or I'm assessing the writer's note that, you know, there's don't normalize these views or digest them all. Some are purposely aggressive or left field. And that's beautiful to be able to experience in that sense, immerse yourself in it. And then a very clear precision of the, uh, the verbatim play. But the other response I honestly had, and this isn't being cute, was this is a wonderful piece of theatre and that's it. This is like the State of the Nation trilogies that I saw when I, you know, Racing Demon, um, Absence of War that I saw when I was in sixth form. This is just a English, British, however you want to couch it, State of the Nation piece of theatre that just should be put on stage because it captures a moment. And that's kind of what I thought I was going to do with my life. Clearly, you know, there's similarities in the, in the way that we approach form. And to a certain degree, what was all the fuss about, if you see what I mean? Is that, can you look back and go? <laughs> Oi. Um, I mean, the, you know, whether or not we keep this bit in or not, you can say as little or as much as you want about it, because yeah. I know you've, uh, you've had to kind of talk about it so much. I mean, it's so funny, isn't it, that when you, you just don't know the jobs that are going to change your life. I mean, I've literally got, like, a tattoo to... I got that the week that Homegrown got really? cancelled, actually, just because I was like, if I can survive this, I can survive anything. But uh, my mother was really displeased. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I think on reflection, and it must be said, I have not picked up Homegrown in six months now. So since the launch, good. it's been a really good. And actually, I was tempted to. I was like, well, maybe it might be time to read it again. I'm like, no, too soon, too soon. It's still traumatic. Um, is uh, now when I think about everything that happened, and this is slightly giving away the ending before telling the beginning of the story, is that I think that, again, relates to what I said earlier, which is I think that if you're an artist of colour, you're only allowed to exist inside a certain box, which is critique your own community, give us these kind of like cute stories about what it's like to be a Nigerian emigrate, whatever the fuck it is, do you know what I mean? But it's like, we need you to fulfill our understanding of your experience, not your own understanding of your experience. And I think that was the problem with Homegrown for the powers that be, is that what they wanted was what they wanted to understand about the radicalization of young British Muslims. And they buy into the identity politics of let's get two Muslims to make it, right? Because we can't possibly do it because we're all white people. We'll get the authentic, but maybe they'll know the secret. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Maybe they'll have the secret code to why people go and join ISIS. Uh, what they were not prepared for is the actual honest response that two Muslims give to why do, you know, young British Muslims go and join ISIS? I've no idea, but I'll tell you about what it's like to be a Muslim in Britain. You know, yeah. and that means that I'm going to tell you a story about sexism and racism and homophobia and class war and all of those things and how all of those things are related and that i think kind of blew the tops of their heads off because you know i remember literally there was there's a scene in homegrown which is about um white feminism you know and everyone's like but surely we love white feminism i'm like sure you do until you're a woman in a hijab and a white feminist is talking on your behalf about whether the hijab is a good or a bad thing yeah and they couldn't they were like, but I don't see what that's got to do with... And I'm like, let me tell you that there are members of this audience who absolutely are going to understand that. It's just not you. This isn't for you, this scene. The next scene might be for you. The next scene, which is about, like, you know, stodgy old Tories being racist. You'll get that because maybe that's your dad, Jeremy, or maybe that's your grandfather, whatever. 
And that was always the point of Hunger was to take this kind of much, much broader look at how problems of radicalization, the flip side of which is Islamophobia, you know, that, that's what the play posits, um, have to be seen as part of a bigger context. Because, for so for example, if you are a young British uh, Muslim woman living in Bethnal Green, you are as affected by racism and sexism as you are by Islamophobia. Hmm. Um, and so you have to look at all of those things equally, right? Um, and I think to an extent it is a... <laughs> Uh, I think they bit off more than they could chew and me and Omar didn't. I think me and Omar always knew what the thing was going to be. Uh, and so, and what was great is that they kind of just left us to our own devices for quite a lot of it. Cause they were yeah. like, we don't really understand this. So we're just going to leave you in this room and you'll come out with, you know, playing. We were like, yes, we will. Uh, and we did, you know, we absolutely did. Um, but I think that they were not prepared for, you know, there's a scene in homegrown, which looks at anti-Semitism in football. And I remember they, the producers only ever saw one day's worth of rehearsals and we were doing that. And it's a really, really offensive, like it uses really offensive language, right? Yeah. But it's all about how that's the point where it's like, it is okay for black people to reclaim nigger as it is for Tottenham uh, football supporters who refer to themselves as the Yid army. That, there's a thing about reclaiming language in that, right? And it's about how it's not okay if you then wield that language against somebody negatively. You could just see them going, hang on, are we doing a scene about what the hell's anti-Semitism got to do with? And you're like, no, but, you know, you've got to make, if you don't make these connections, then I can't yeah. help you. But I remember realising really uh, early on in rehearsals that they'd never seen Four Lions. <laughs> well, then I definitely can't help you. <laughs> I was like, that's the really easy access point on this one. Um but I think, you know, what was really interesting is that, you know, when me and Omar were asked to do Home, so he was asked first, uh, and actually when they originally asked him, they said they wanted two writers, one British and one Muslim. And he wrote back to them saying, yeah, that's all well and good, but which one am I? And they were like, oh, touche. <laughs> you know I mean, like, fair. And I was like, oh, it's that, that thing about that level of microaggression where you're like, my day hasn't even fucking started. Somebody's already <laughs> microaggressed me in an email. Do you know what I mean? And, that, and they probably... They probably really didn't get that. That's an incredibly offensive thing to say to somebody. To say, you know, like, you're Muslim or you're British. And I'm like, you're literally what this play is about. That being a Muslim is somehow separate to being British in whatever way. What is being, you know, anyway, much bigger question. You know, and anyways, so he, when he got it, was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. He's like, I don't want to do this bullshit. Do you know what I mean? He's like, this identity politics bullshit. It's like, let's get in the Muslims to... And I was like, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and at that time, it was about the the pitch that they had sent him was about doing it based on the um, Birmingham Trojan Horse Affair. And, you know, cute eye rolling from both of us, like, right in the back of our heads. Yeah, yeah. Just because we were like, I mean, come the fuck on. I mean, like, that school is 90% Muslim, I think. You're talking about a national, you know, youth theatre organisation, which is not going to be 90% Asian, let alone 90% Muslim. Jeremy and I was like, where's this cast that you're gonna join me and I was like that's such a specific set of you know eye roll eye roll uh and so he was like let me counter pitch them an idea so he counter pitched them this idea which was uh about doing a play within a play and sort of had the beginnings of where hunger and ended up in it and at that time the play was going to be uh, a Genet play called the screens which I'd never read and has an enormous cast but it's it, the reason is it's one of the only plays in the European canon that has an Arab protagonist as a Muslim protagonist. Right. Uh, and so we went, uh, by this point I'd been brought on 
because guess how many Muslim directors there are in this country, right? Uh, and uh, and we did a workshop and we went in and we had this genet and I was like, oh, well, I can't do this play. I said, why? Because like, even I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't know the 120 young people we're going to have to work with. Uh, and we, we were experimenting mainly with form, I think. And we were really interested in uh, ideas of minstrelsy. Um, yes. Mainly because uh, at that time I had started writing a lot for The Guardian about film. And I'd done quite a lot of, I mean, I write mainly about race in film. And, uh, and I'd done a piece about it. And in it I talked about how Arabs are typically either kind of desexualized or like hypersexualized, uh, like evil shakes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and we were sort of interested in that universe, particularly because of the number of times that white actors are asked to play Arabs, just by being a bit swarthy. Do you know what I mean? And so Tony Banderas, Mark Strong, Laurence Olivier, obviously, but that's, you know, this is a really standard that, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, they've all browned up to play Arabs. So we were quite interested in that. and But also in what, happens when you reverse things like gender and race and class with existing scripts. So what happens if you do four lines with all women? You know, weirdly, it works really well. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was, so it was quite a lot of formal jiggery-pokery. And um, and we knew, the thing is, we knew that we had to have a large cast. We knew it was set in a school. We knew it had to be immersive. We knew it had to pr- promenade. And so we sort of, the band of the sort of shape, we were like, you're going to go on a tour and then you're, there's going to be this play within a play which isn't the Jeanette, because Nadia says it's too difficult, we can't do it. <laughs> and so we were sort of scrabbling around desperately for an idea of what we were going to do. And I think we knew very quickly that because we were being given free reign, we were going to do all the things we weren't typically allowed to do. So for us, it was about the exploration of form and trope and yeah. genre. Uh, we're both massive horror nuts, um, you know, we're now working on a short film that's a short horror and we're like in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right. So I knew very quickly that I wanted to sort of do something that was, you know, based around children horror, so like children in the corn and things like that, but also about haunted houses and, you know. So basically what, basically what I'm saying is that we had like lots and lots of external ideas, but no real sense of what the show was about for quite a long time. And then uh, we were also looking for a venue and um, we found this school in Bethnal Green. And actually our first response was no, it feels too grotesque to ambulance chase, to go into the community that is actually, and Omar said a hard no, but I was kind of in love with the building because it's really hard as well to find a building where you're like, we already knew that there were going to be five different plays happening simultaneously and you had to be able to get the entire audience and all the actors around without seeing each other. Mm. And so Omar had a rather brilliant idea. I think we, I can't remember which Dennis Kelly play it is, it's a fake verbatim play. I can't remember, but he just read it. And he was like, well, what if we do verbatim? And I was like, yeah, sweet, cool. Mainly because I'd never done it before. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, it's quite funny. I know that's not true. I'd worked on, I'd done a play at the Tricycle. Uh, I'd worked on The Great Game, uh, which Nick Kent had been directing Nick an Indu. And, and so I sort of associated verbatim with being quite dry and quite like stand and deliver. And so it was more than anything, I was like, here's a challenge. Like, cool, I've never done it. You've never done it. Let's do it. Like, we'll see what it happens when two people of colour tackle verbatim. And so we went around the streets of the Green. So the rule that we set up was that we were going to interview, like, the first 30 people we met. And there was no choosing them. Uh, the only thing was that they all got asked the same 10 questions. And the first question is, are you a Muslim? 
And the answer had to be no. So we knew we were only interviewing non-Muslims in Bethnal Green. And genuinely, the people that are in that are like the first 30 people we met. And we did it all in one day. <laughs> right, this, this crossed my mind because there's, there's two or three strippers in that. No, no, so it's, it's actually the same strippers split into four characters. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah so there's okay, a couple okay. where it's like, mainly because you, if you've got 120 actors, yeah, you've got to yeah, give yeah, them yeah, more sure, puffs. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> no, it's just so no, so it's, one, it's one stripper, God bless her. I've been to in Bethnal Green. Uh, yeah, yeah quite. Know and... Um, and actually, that became a real political point of being like, so, you know, for the number of people who like love to believe that racism isn't real and Islamophobia is a figment of black people's imaginations, uh, I'm like, we spent one day in Bethnal Green and this was the shit that people said to us. Do you know what I mean? I was like, so if you're a young brown Muslim girl, that's what you're dealing with on a daily fucking basis. Um, but the trick came in that we uh, we faked the end. So the end was written by the cast, which is the idea of like the Muslims all come out and apologize for ISIS, right? They're all yeah, just like, oh, isn't it awful? Yeah. And we're like, we're in... I think the real idea for us behind Hunger, and actually if I try and boil it down, was the identity politics of two Muslims being given that job to hang, essentially hang their own community out to dry, right? But also people were obsessed. People were obsessed with what do you guys think about radicalization in Britain? And so we, uh, Omar actually started off really clearly being like, I in no way want my opinion to be reflected in this play. He's like, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter just because we're Muslims what we think. We don't have some magic code. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and actually, if you look, if you read it closely, we're not in it at all. There's not a bit of it. I think like a couple of times people refer to the fact that it's kind of bullshit that we got the job, you know, and they're like, yeah, but what if they're only here because they're Muslim? It's not about merit, is it? So they keep referring to us. I think we're technically the interviewers in the verbatim, technically, as in like, you can hear my voice on the tape going, so then what did you think, racist lady? Right, right. Uh, but we're not in it at all. And I think that's the oddest thing when people read it. And then, you know, I remember when we did the launch and people were like, why weren't you on stage? I'm like, because it's not about what we think. It's about there. You want to know what I think? Pay well, it's, it's 9 really, 99 and buy the book. <laughs> it's really, um, and buy the book. And, and, and you know, Please buy, buy the, the book. book. <laughs> buy the book. In that sense, for me, there is a link. Obviously, you know, because you're talking about a deconstructing form, you're talking about verbatim, there is that link with London Road. But there's a deeper link with London Road, which is that piece ostensibly is about a community in which something has happened, the murder of prostitutes. And it's talking to the community about their response to that event. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the murder of prostitutes until it really is kind of sideways at the end. And that was the same response I it got was this is this is I mean smart's overselling it. This is about a community and it's about levels of a community and it's about different generations within that community responding to an event, not directly about that event until you understand it's absolutely about that mm. event. I think the thing that really and it's one of the things I mean I think that meeting Omar and working with Omar has made more of a difference to my intellectual well being than any other relationship in my life in many ways. Um, not because our experiences are the same. We've very, got very different experiences, but we get each other. And um, one of the things that I learned from him was that ambivalence seems to never be an option. Yeah. And he's like, seriously, he's like, white people are allowed to be ambivalent about all sorts of things. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's like, why are we just allowed to feel quite ambivalent about something? He's just like, it's neither here nor there to me, really. And actually that was... And it's one of the hardest things to get because it's also in some ways it's, it, it risks being incredibly dramatically inert. Do you know what I mean? But actually, politically, it's incredibly important to just be like, I don't care more or less than you about whatever it is, X, yeah. Y, and Z. Do you know what I mean? And actually, 
and so the gest, the final gesture of homegrown, which I like to refer to as the big animated Muslim foot, <laughs> because it's, it does. It, I mean, it kind of grinds to a halt. But that was the point, right? Is that we were like, there isn't a resolution to this. There's no great time. Just rolls on. So this whole thing about this man who just gets up and starts to pray is simply because it's time to pray. Yeah. And he doesn't really care about everything that's happened in front of us. Do you know what I mean? He's, you know, he's actually not bothered by it because guess what? He always knew it. He always knew what the conversation was. And, you know, I get that same thing when you watch, you know, whatever goddamn play it is about Muslims at the National. Uh, you know, uh, oh, that was it. I remember when I went to see, was it we need to talk about this, which is DV8's play about radicalism. Yes. Uh, or Islamism. Uh and they faked a protester. Yeah, so there's a, from what I've read, I didn't see it, but there is a quote-unquote Muslim in the audience who then responds to it in a yeah, and kind of storms out. Yeah, he throws a rock out. on stage. He throws a rock on, they're doing a thing talking about, you know, like basically Muslims are backwards and they need a reformation, which, thank you, I'm inundated with every day. I don't need to pay £40 to come to the theatre and hear that, mm. believe it or not. Uh, and so they fake this dude in the audience who will throw him around there. He's like, this is disgusting. This is a shit show and walks out, right? And I remember talking to Omar about that because we'd both seen it. And he was like, the gag is that guy's not there. That guy's not in your theatre. That guy doesn't give a shit. He's not going to see your plays. Jeremy, he doesn't give a shit what you have to say about Islam because it's his, it's every day. It's his life. Do you know what I mean? But he's like, if you have to fake it, you're in real trouble. And he's like, let me put, he's like, let me posit it to you like this. He's like, if you replace the word Muslim with the word Jew, in that play we're up in arms because those are people who are represented in that audience fine right so he's like this idea that you're attacking somebody who isn't actually even there well what's the point you're not actually getting offense out of anyone jimmy or like white middle class liberals like whoever it is that you want to piss off fine but pissing off somebody who isn't actually participating is sort of like kicking a puppy that's already drowned do you know what i mean yeah. like i don't really get the point i i i, I absolutely personally this is just personal opinion. I reject that. Yeah, but you can, you know, why would you not say this about this certain person or how can you say that? It's like, uh, Don, I remember Stuart Lee being on uh, the Today programme having to justify uh, Jerry Springer the opera and the fact that it, you know, attacked the church and it had Christ on stage and has Christ on stage with an aside singing, perhaps I'm a bit gay. Um, and it's brilliant and it's really, and it uses that biblical ideology and the response that was thrown to him again and again was, yeah, but you wouldn't do this about Islam. You wouldn't do this about Muhammad. And he said, yeah, but part of the reason is that in that culture, in that religious belief, depiction and art is very, has always been a very problematic area. I can go to the Vatican City and buy a snow globe with Jesus in. That's the difference. There isn't the equivalence that you're kind of saying. You can't well, just I say just if any, you were like, a Jew. I mean, here's or if the you... thing, right? It's only ever fucking straight white dudes who are like, oh, there's equivalency <laughs> between, you know, like people who, let me introduce you to like everyone who has ever defended freedom of speech. It is yeah. never anyone who's negatively affected by it. Do you know what I mean? So the second that you say things like, hey, man, I, you know, dream of a world where freedom of speech might be anti racist or might be anti, mm. you know, whatever. And they kind of go, no, freedom of speech is absolute. And I'm like, yeah, but you're never going to be at the kicking end of it. Do you know what I mean? So it's all well and good for you. You know, so they're like, defend Bill Maher when he makes like endless, incredibly Islamophobic comments. And they're doing, do you follow this? Bill Maher on HBO. And then he made a joke where he refers to himself as a house nigger. And I was like, 
Come at me now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Come defend that to me. Do you know what I mean? And they do because they're like, oh, it's a joke. And I'm just like, yeah, but <laughs> he's not the person who's ever negatively affected by these things, which means there's no stakes to it, which means actually I'm not that interested in it besides anything else. I'm much more interested, you know, if you go back to like early, even like Jamie Foxx with Dave Chappelle, you know, there's like and Chris Rock, and they're actually playing with something that's quite dangerous because they, they have skin in the game, actually. Yeah. And I get really bored people who have no skin in the game being like, oh my God, I'm going to poke all these hornets' nests. And you're like... Um, I think the thing about Hunger for me is in a way it was always, you know, we, the five acts were referred to as... So, you you know, there are, there are 25 scenes and you would see five of them. And the whole idea was that so if you and I went together, we might get split up. And yeah. then, you know, we'd come back together at the end and be like, hey man, do you see that rap battle scene? No, tell me about that. Oh, do you see the scene where they like did a hijab tutorial? No, you know, so the idea that you had conversations with each other la da da lovely sort of you know spiritual reasons for that and um but so but the idea is that they were themed right so you saw one out of every kind of themed act and they were islam 101 was that yeah. one and that was like lovely educational bit the show that you think you're probably coming to yeah, see yeah, that yeah, yeah. learn something about islam yeah. and then they were called hang on let's see if i can get this right around fuck sun readers fuck times readers fuck black liberals and fuck white liberals uh, the idea being that that's, that's basically uh, all of society boiled down into four quarters. No, I'm being facetious. But uh, but that what we were trying to say was that everyone has a problematic relationship with Islam. And there is not a single fucking person who does not have some form of a problematic relationship with uh, a question of Islam, the question of radical Islam. And so we're coming for all of you. Yeah. And we are, we are recentering this experience on us, actually. We're the... We're the particular, we're the universal, and you guys are everything else. Uh, and I think people found that really difficult, actually. I think they were like, but it's so aggressive. I'm like, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it's too aggressive. I don't know. But I think that it's it's honest. It's how we honestly feel. And, you know, with everything that happened, do I think the world's, you know, not ready to stomach that? Probably. Do I think it's tragic? Probably. <laughs> um but I think that the thing that, and this is the equivalent, this is coming back to the equivalency argument. So when The National did, Nick Kent and Gillian Slovo did um, Another World, I think it was called, which was a verbatim play about young British Muslims going to join ISIS. And, you know, we were inundated by press requests going like, oh, but, you know, it's basically what you guys are trying to do, you know, the day at The National. And so we wrote a piece about it for The Guardian just because I was like, I'm not giving all of these interviews, so I'd rather just write yeah, it and have control yeah. of it. And I said to them, I was like, if you think that there is an equivalency between two old white people doing this play and two young brown Muslims doing this play, jog on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not interested in what it is. If you don't think that there's a difference between those two things, then you're wrong. But also, it's like, you know, let's look at the level of hysteria that is attached to Muslims doing fucking anything. You know I mean? Like, within six months, I think, of, there was Mimsy, who was being displayed at the, uh, at the Mall Galleries. Sorry, not the ICA you know, pieces of art that had already been displayed, but the situation had ratcheted to a point where, and we can talk about the presence of the police endlessly, but, you know, the police were saying it would cost the gallery £36,000 to display her art, which had been previously displayed, you know, and because that's the level of fear that we attach to Muslims now. And so, no, I'm not the same as Nick Cannon, Gillian Slovo, believe it or not, because I get stopped at the airport every time I enter or exit this country. How many times has Nick Kent got stopped leaving this country? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I remember. And the fact, I remember talking to Madden Eunice about it and he was flying to New York to, uh, I think they had, a, I think Disgraced, which was the play they done was there. And he traveled with his white 
exact director, I think it was. I can't remember who it was actually. Uh, and he said to him, said he's like, I'm going to get stopped. You should just go to the hotel and like, I'll see you there. And he did. He got stopped for six or seven hours. And he said he came out and the guy had waited, you know, and he was like, no, you fucking idiot. Like I told you, you should have gone to the hotel. And this white guy was like, scan, you know, he's like, oh, I had no, I kind of thought you were kidding. And I was like, yeah, but the thing is, any brown person knows that Madney isn't kidding because that's the world we live in. It was one of the, I can't remember why we had two meetings. And there was one where we were trying to put a date in a diary and you said you were flying back from somewhere and you said, I'm going to be there. And I, I jokingly the day after, because I was like, you know, I wonder if she did, wonder if she didn't. Whenever we had a meeting, I said, so how long were you at the airport? as a joke. And you just took me through like the, whatever it was, six, seven, eight hours of your life that just transpired. Yeah, yeah, and it's endless. But the thing is, like, what drives me even more bonkers, and there's been a little bit of it in the, is that, you know, now there are certain, like, people who are like, oh, my God, I never knew this thing had happened. I was like, then do you not know any brown people? Do you know what I, mean? I was like, because it's been happening since 9-11. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. there's a real market. Like, I know that. My middle name's Osama. Trust me, I know these things. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? I was like, my younger brothers, one of whom just turned 18, the other one's 27. This has always been their life. So actually, if you had ever known a person of color or of Islamic heritage, I think it's probably more pertinent to this. Um, this has always been our life. So if any, do you know what I mean? I think it reveals like a, it's like, it's like fucking well-meaning white people. I'm realizing I'm in a room with two well-meaning white people, but you know who, and it's like they call it this worst insults to throw the well-meaning. <laughs> no, but this is the thing. Like when I was in fact, all right. So here's like like. But just quickly, the answer is no. I don't. I don't have any. Uh, I say that really specifically. The last friend of color that I had served in the paratroopers and came on the wrong side of an IED, and uh, so he was breezing through customs when he had to when he had to pass through it because uh, he was an officer in the paras. Um, but you're right, you know, that that was my singular experience of it, partly because I, I, it's never come up in conversation with Madeline. Mm. I don't particularly take that as an insult because I'm not sure I, there's much... No, and I know you didn't no. mean it as that, but it's kind of like therein is exactly the problem or the problem or the situation or just simply things that happen. But I think it's like I found, you know, I went to give a speech at Amnesty International... Uh, earlier this year? Yeah, actually it was the funny it was the day after the homegrown launch. <laughs> I was, Wouldn't you rather be in a rehearsal room? Yeah, I mean, I tell you what, I never wanted to become a talking head, but it's it's happened and that's fine. But, um, and I gave a speech and it was International Women's Day, right? Uh, and oh, so, so they the were like... Box, the yeah, exactly, the other box. There's only ever two. Uh, and um, they have said, can you, if you could just come in and you could talk about, you know, your career and intersectionality and, you know, I was like, yeah, Oh, whatever. Uh, and I went in and I was like, hello, uh, I've come to do a speech today, which is entitled uh, Why White Women Are My Enemy. And like every white woman in the room just clenches. Do you know what I mean? And the five people of color were like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I was doing a thing about like, what really bothers me is this idea that, you know, and it's increasingly, it's become a recurring theme in my work, which is about, the erasure of race in public spaces. It doesn't matter if it's extreme right, you know, half-baked left, don't care. Mm. Like I am as affected. I'm, you know, I'm afraid of them differently. Um, I'm obviously afraid of getting my head kicked in by a neo-Nazi, but I'm also afraid of people who say things like, I don't see color. And they say things like, I don't see color, but then they've got no friends of color. They've never fucked a person of color. Jeremy, they don't really employ people of color. And you go, that scares me as much because you are erasing my identity. I do identify as black. I'm a proudly black person. 
And for you to say I don't see color means you don't see me as you know in 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 a really like vital way. Um, and so you know those I'm not equivocating them completely, but I'm just saying that those are the two things that you are faced with. And I think that. I think there's a particular problem with the question of Islam in the way it's presented in this country and that it's presented as being endlessly contemporary, right? So it's just like, all of this has only happened since 9-11. Do you know, all of this has only happened since 7-7, whatever, you know. What terrifies me is that I know people now who are like so young that they don't remember 9-11. I'm like, whoa, what's that like? Um, you know, but actually, you know, I, one of the key texts when we were working on Homegrown is Aaron Kudnani's book, um, The Muslims Are Coming, which takes it back to, you know, the Cold War and pre the Cold War. And he's specifically talking about Muslim communities in Britain and the, U, uh, and the US, knowing that that's the whole tension of the book. And, um, and he's like, you know, like at the end of the day, like it's not surprising, but it is sickening at the end. Do you know what I mean? Like, because there's only so long that you can be new for and like people like discover you like they discover a new species of mm. jellyfish or whatever and you're just like yeah but I've always been here <laughs> I've always been here you've just not been listening and you know and, and now that I'm interesting to you in whatever way or I can be fetishized by you and I think that actually the fetishizing of otherness in white spaces is as dangerous in fact you know so we're not you know we're going to do plays you know, I think the Bush is doing a play called like the hijabi monologues and that just makes me want to suck out my eyes. Then I'm like, really? Really? Or uh, could I just not be a subject? Do you know what I mean? Could I just be a, could I have like my own wants and needs? Like, what do I want to do as an artist? Do I, maybe that those artists do really want to write about wearing their hijabs. I don't fucking know. You know, I know that that's not what I would be interested in, but you know, fine. Um, I just think that it can feel really thankless and it feels like there's no way to win. What what aspect of In it? In so much as you're sort of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And I was talking to you about this. I can't remember, I think I was doing a radio interview and I was and they were like, you know, what do you think is good art about Muslims? And I was like, hey, throw the word good out the window. I am not interested in it. It is a toilet word as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Um, but I was like, you know, honestly, as somebody who is of Islamic heritage. And that's sort of the full stop on that sentence, actually, because I don't just make work about Muslims. Uh, it can feel a lot like I'm only ever asked to work, work about Muslims, but it just feels like no matter what you do, and it's so much of what's in Homegrown is the fact that people are really unhappy about the play, that they're like, I don't agree with. You know, there's a recurring voice in it, who's Lisa, who's one of the actors in it, where who is herself a Muslim, and is, uh, she's a Druze. Uh, where she keeps saying, like, I don't get why we're giving a light to such negative things about Muslims. Why don't we just talk about all the awesome things? And I'm, I'm like, that's the problem, you know, is that you just feel like you're probably letting someone down in some way, but you just got to go, yeah, I, can't, is, I can't please everyone. Yeah, I know, but, but I think you said it earlier on, you know, like 90 minutes ago, you, you can't please everyone. And that's, that is the death of creativity's trying to please everyone yeah. and i think i think what, what i perceive is i don't really understand and i and i mean this honestly and not it's probably going to sound wrong but i don't really understand this this catch-all muslim islam because of the plurality and, oh yeah i mean the fact really, that anyone can say the phrase muslim community and not like instantly combust is mad yeah it's, it's kind of like and also and what are you talking about the geographic cultural histories of countries that 
then to come, it became Islamic or, you know, the, the actual religious teachings just seems to be so utterly complicated as it is with any world religion. So that, I'm generally interested in you. I'm generally interested in Omar's life experience. I'm generally interested not just you telling your own stories, but your perception as I am with any you know, of the artists I hope, you know, that, that walk through our doors, walk through doors of any theatre. Your take on the world as a whole. Um, and what seems to be the most frustrating thing is that you have to be the standard barriers that you kind of, for no, I mean, maybe that's not yeah. the way to put it. It's, it's kind of like, no, just tell the stories, tell your stories. And then have someone, you know, have another woman of colour or a woman, uh, white woman who's a follower of Islam telling their stories and let them be in conflict and let's have that debate across, you but know. The problem is there's only ever one at the moment and so you sort of have to do everything or nothing and increasingly I'm sort of tended towards nothing. Do you know I mean? It's in so much as I'd just rather, I mean, maybe just for a while, maybe it's because specifically how I feel at the moment, just not be called on it. Um, but I think I'll say like, I was really interested, but I don't know if anyone follows uh, American culture as closely as I do, but Claudia Rankin won the MacArthur Genius Grant, mm. I think, a uh, year before last. Uh, and I think it was the largest grant they've ever given. Uh, and when they asked her, what are you going to, what are you going to spend the cash on, Claudia? So I'm going to start uh, an academic, you know, like a university uh, group of scholars to investigate whiteness. Um, Claudia Rankin, of course, being black. And... Uh, and I thought that was brilliant because, you know, she's like, there is increasingly, particularly in universities in America, it must be said this is not the case in universities in Britain, there is quite a lot of good, you know, academic thinking about people of colour and, mm. you know, African-American studies. Do you know what I mean? Like that, it's still like a relatively small field, but like it's happening. Do you know what I mean? You've got people like Cornell West, people like us. You know what I mean? There are eminent scholars. She's like, where's the fucking university department that investigates whiteness? You know what I mean? And she's like, you know who should do that? People of color, because we've been sitting outside whiteness and looking at it our entire damn lives. Do you know what I mean? Like we're raised in it. We're raised in white structures. And she's like, and that's what I want to do, or at least be the beginning of it, of like, you know, now like there are various alt-right sites. that I, re- I love to read things like alt-right websites and I love to watch Fox. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's my like for like 20 How minutes. Do you control your blood pressure? Oh, no, it's good. No, it's fine. Because I often, also I think like, civilizations die. Do you know what I mean? Like I come from one of like the oldest civilizations in the world. I also come from the only civilization, the first civilization that allowed women to be queens. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, these two things are connected in my head. And um, I, 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 I... before Beyonce? Even before, yeah, go on, wow, fuck me. If I have to read another bloody Guardian <laughs> think piece that involves Beyonce. But, um, uh, but uh, I also don't like Beyonce. Kel Surprise. But, um, but I think that what are they talking about? Older cultures? The oldest culture, the, the um, first culture to become queen, cult, civilization. Oh, yeah, no, but what I, what I love about, um, I love reading things about the alt-right, is that, but the whole thing about civilization, and it's a dream, so uh, the Nubian pharaohs, I'm from the very, very north point of Sudan, like just before it comes what is now Egypt, uh, and the Nubian pharaohs are the 25th dynasty. Uh, and if you go to the museum in Cairo, uh, and they list all of the dynasties of pharaohs, they skip the 25th. They like to pretend it didn't happen. We're called the Kushite pharaohs or the black pharaohs. And they like to pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, they're just like, la, la, la. Then there's like 150 years where we were controlled by black people in the South. Uh, and I'm like, that's kind of great. Uh, but my point is that you can just, they just cease to be, right? Now I go and I, you know, and I've been to those pyramids and I've seen where my 
four, four forefathers came from. And I'm like, and then one day that civilization died uh, or it evolved, whatever it is now. You know, and then Islam happened. Do you know what I mean? Like things mm. happen. And a friend of mine who's a, a black British journalist, but he lives in New Jersey, wrote to me the other day and he's like, maybe this is, you know, all of this shit, this alt-right shit, this neo-Nazi shit, maybe it's just the death throes of a civilization that is dying and that civilization is white supremacy. Do you know what I mean? He's like, maybe it's the last kick. And I was like, I really want to believe that. I want to believe that more than you, you know, and that's what I, so I like to watch things like Fox and, you know, and Breitbart. And I just got into, is it called Gavin McInnes, who in fact was one of the guys who founded Vice and is now like an alt-right nut job. Yeah. Really? No, didn't. I only found that out very recently. Oh yeah. And he's got his own like TV thing. It's weird. But uh, I like to watch it because when you watch them talk themselves in circles, you're like, this is like reaching an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Do you know what I mean? Like they've become the duck-billed platypus. <laughs> they can go no further. And that, I find that, and you know, and then you look at the rest of thinking and you think, no, maybe we're all right. Maybe it's, maybe it's all going to be okay. And then, you know, then you have days where you can't get out of bed because it's just too much. Um, but yeah, anyway, hey-ho. What were we talking about? <laughs> well, you almost entered on a really high note of maybe it's going to be okay. And then you said, and then some day to you, but just I don't want to get out of bed. The real problem with theatre is that it might not be okay because, so here's the thing, I've got, you know, I I started having a rule where I was like, I'm not going to go and watch theatre uh, or I'm not going to take part in creative institutions that do not embrace people like me, um, whether on stage or behind the scenes. You'd be amazed the number of theatres you therefore can't go to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you just begin to strike them off your list. You're like, I'm not going there. Also, because I don't fucking want to. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, life's too short. I'd rather go watch like a really good film or go to a really great exhibition or whatever. Like, theatres is not the be all and end all. And, um, but there's a point at which I get psychologically how it is thrilling to see yourself reflected back at you on stage and in, in cinema, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is. I remember going to, when I was very, I can't remember whether I was actually going to see A Life from Palestine at the Young Vic, which is not my story. I'm not Palestinian. Uh, but watching a show in Arabic where everybody else is having to read the surtitles and you don't <laughs> is one of the most weirdly empowering things you can do. And I took my aunts and I took my cousins who never go to the theatre. Do you know what I mean? But it was like, this is for us in whatever way because they speak the same language as, as us. So I do understand like on a really basic psychological level when you see people like you on stage that is empowering and joyous and makes you feel connected to the great, you know, existential ouch. And, um, but the fact is, is that I oddly think that if you are a part of a minority in this country, you're better at, you're better at empathy because you are so used to seeing people who do not look like you, but getting something from it. Do you know what I mean? So I went to see like the fairy man. That's in no way my story. That couldn't be further away from being my story. But I watched that woman deal with being in love with, you know, her brother's brother, you know, and I'm like, that's me or that guy's me. Or, you know, actually this is a play about would you be willing to die for something you believe in? I get that. You know, I get it. It doesn't have to be me specifically represented on stage, but the status quo is at such a point right now where I don't understand why it is that it seems feels increasingly like white curators, white programmers, white assistant directors literally require to see themselves on stage. And I'm like, and that they have no imagination. Genuinely, like I wonder if it's a real like death of imagination in white creative cultures. Because I'm like, why do you literally have to see, if not yourself, your wife, your sister, your mum, do you know what I mean? Like whoever it is. And that to make the jump to 
relating to a story from a minority being like they can never conceive of it as being universal it has to be particular whereas i'm like or you could just let me tell the story and like find yourself in it because that's what i've been doing since the dawn of time um so come on over to my slightly more evolved step um and join me um and i sort of that's what i hope for because i think i still feel like i don't think we've massively changed from a place where you know, you get to do your black play in a season, or you get to do your Asian play. Do you know what I mean? And everyone's talking to our sister, right? And they were like, we don't know why those audiences don't come back. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, really? Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Microaggression for the day. Um, and, um, but I was like, well, if you made stuff that interested them, they would. Do you know what I mean? And like, I'm as interested by plays about anyone who has similar struggles to me. Like, it's not about they're exactly my struggles because if you could exactly put the struggles of like a mixed race, anglo Sudanese, like atheist Muslim, middle-class woman on stage, I'd be very impressed. Uh, but, you know, it just, it has to, but I think people are afraid of feelings. I think like we've, we've become too clever and not enough interested in what people feel in a space and the sort of the notion of watching something collectively. I think as well. And it's interesting because I think if you look at that, like when I was younger and looking at like, you know, the way that like trade union action, for example, was represented in newspapers and protests and things like that. And actually how it was kind of seen as being really impressive. And now you look at the way that like collective action is really demonized. And, you know, the photographs that they will choose to put up of an anti-Trump march or whatever it is, um, is that, you know, we're moving so far towards the individual and so far away from the collective as being a good idea. Um, that doesn't surprise me that people aren't interested in like collective they're interested in me and my you know my own filtered experience of a thing and I think that the second you begin to think about how many people can I make simultaneously feel this one thing and he'll be green and she'll be purple and they'll be you know yellow whatever it is but I can make them all feel this thing that's that's the better thing for me thank you thank you so much for your time it's all right that was fun and talk shit for an hour and a half. The first gig I ever got, actually while I was still at university, was assisting Mike Bradwell at the old Bush Theatre. I mean the old Bush Theatre by the room above a pub. The beautiful old Bush Theatre, which Mike always pointed out if you took a length diagonally was actually wider than the pros at the Royal Court. I remember walking down the road with him, bearing in mind I was still at university, hoping to become a career director. And he said, where are you again? And I said, Bristol. And he said, pause. And he said, why don't you go to Oxford? If you were president of the Oxford Drama Society, that's, that's what would make your career. Thanks very much to Nadia for coming in and just being amazing and putting me on the back foot the whole time. Special thanks to Peter Weidman, who was recording and producing this episode. And thanks as ever to Luke B. Ford for creating our amazing music. If you liked this episode, then go to whatever mobile device that podcast catches everything that you listen to and write lovely things about us and put stars in there. If you didn't like it, just stop where you are and give us an audible boo. Lovely to speak to you. See you soon.